Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. So we come to the last chapter of Jonah. And really, this is my favourite. Mainly because it is so in your face. It may not seem like it. But it really is, and it speaks to one specific people group. And guess who that is? Us. Christians in particular. Um, Its message is is very straightforward and and quite, uh, quite overwhelming for someone like Jonah, who is known as the prophet of God, who has been raised in a nation that's been set apart, God's people, as they are called. So, get your Bibles opened up to chapter 4 of Jonah. Are you going to wait for me to put it up? Which is right there. Uh, Chapter 4, we're going to start from verse 1. Now, just to lead up to this, for those of you who missed that last couple of weeks, Jonah gets a message from God, go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. How bad are the Assyrians? Really bad, Okay. Um, most lists online will tell you they're the second worst empire in the world, the first being the Nazis, okay? That's how bad these guys are. Jonah's afraid, doesn't want to do it, doesn't like the Assyrians at all, runs away from God. Hops on a boat, goes across the ocean, or the sea, actually, because the Mediterranean's not an ocean, but anyway, gets across the sea, um, starts, a storm hits the, the boat, they're thinking, what's going on here? Jonah says, it's me, and they throw him overboard. Gets swallowed by big fish, Praises God while he's in the fish, which is a very strange incident altogether. Gets vomited up on a, on a beach, which in itself would have been quite an experience. And then God says to him, hey, hop on back to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh, preaches the shortest sermon you'll ever hear, uh, with no intent on anyone reconciling or no forgive, nothing. He just hits them up with five words, you're all going to die. You are all gonna, yep, you're all going to die, you're all going to perish. And they all repent. The whole city, the king, even the animals, everyone's repented. So now we're at the beginning of verse four, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. Now, this change of plans upset Jonah. What upset Jonah? Well, God's not going to destroy Nineveh anymore. Why? Because they've repented. And he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this? Lord, that's why I ran away to Tarshish. Ah, truth be known. Was he really afraid of the Syrians and what they would do to him? He was afraid that God would not destroy them, that he would hear their cries and their sorrows and he would forgive them. Wow. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Under any other circumstances, that's great to hear. I knew how easily, listen to this, how easily you could cancel your plans for destroying these people. If anyone tells you how wicked and how overwhelming and wrong the Old Testament God is, just read them this passage. Have you ever heard that? People who say, oh, the Old Testament gods is a vindictive, vicious God. Well, that's not what Jonah says. Gracious, compassionate, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. I knew how easily 
you could cancel your plans for destroying these people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive because nothing I predicted is going to happen. The Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? There's so much just in those four verses. I could be here all morning. But it's incredible. Jonah has just described God in an incredibly beautiful way, and he's angry about it. Doesn't he remember who he's working for? Now, just a quick question for those of you who might know the Old Testament well. Whenever God appeared, what did people normally do? Fell on their faces, freaked out, went a little bit, God's here. Why was that? Because his holiness. Now, anytime someone spoke to God, it was just out of fear, or here's this big God, and here's Jonah talking to God, making his demands. I can't believe you did this. Gone is the fear. Gone is, is the acknowledgement of who he's actually talking to. He's demanding. Kill me now. That's pretty big to say something like that to an almighty, all-powerful God. The person of which you are employed for. The one that you represent to a nation of people. The one that you hold in high esteem. The one you call gracious and loving. Grace is an amazing thing. The description Jonah has of God is incredible. It's amazing. And we forget this sometimes because we pick on certain aspects of the Old Testament and we say, oh yes, we just blow off God of the Old Testament and go straight to the New Testament because Jesus has come, now God is loving. No, he's always been loving. He's always been slow to anger. He's always been gracious and compassionate. We just tend to forget that sometimes. And in this instance, Jonah has completely forgotten about it. He's forgotten who it is he represents. He's forgotten who it is that he represents. The Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? Do you have any right to be angry about this? I'm going to go back a few books to the book of Joshua because I want to explain to you why God makes this question to Jonah. Joshua chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. Okay, the scenario is this. The Israelites, they've crossed the Jordan. They're about to face their first siege. They're about to tackle the great city of Jericho. Joshua is the commander of the armies. Moses is dead. He is now the big shot, number one guy. And he's a bit nervous on the eve of battle because this is the first battle in the Holy Land. If they don't get this right, then what's the point of coming into the Holy Land at all? So he's a bit nervous. He's a bit worried. Would he be able to sleep the night before the battle? Well, obviously not. So as we read here, it says, As Joshua approached the city of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man facing him with sword in hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied. I'm commander of the Lord's army. 
At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What, you, what do you want your servant to do? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. And Joshua did as he was told. If you read the previous verses, it's late night. He can't sleep, so he goes for a walk. He goes up to this hill that overlooks Jericho and thinking through his battle strategies. He's thinking through all the things that you would think of the night before the battle. Have I got this right? Am I in the right place? And he sees a stranger on a hill. Now, he knows it's not one of his own army. Why? Because they should all be in bed right now. And if he is, he'd be in trouble. Oh, there's this guy there. He says, are you friend or foe? And the response is this, neither one. What kind of a response is that? I'm sorry, I I asked you, uh, friend or foe, neither one wasn't an option, right? And frankly, for most people, neither one means foe. Okay, because you're either with me or against me, okay? There's no middle ground here. Why does he say neither one? Because he's not human? Yep, taking it a step further though, I would say because God doesn't take sides. Because at the end of the day, God loves everyone. Now, sometimes choices have to be made. And in this case, he's working with the Israelites. This is what needs to be done. We don't understand why. And frankly, I'm not God, so I can't explain why. One day, I was talking with some friends last night. How many questions would you have for God when you go up and see him? Quite, quite a few, really. Quite a few. And uh, this would be one of them. But going back to this, neither one. Do you have any right to be upset about this? Do you have any right to be... I love these people. Whether they're doing the right thing or the wrong thing, I still love them. And if they turn to me, and if they say, I'm sorry, if they look for forgiveness, what will they find? Grace. They will find grace. They will find grace. The funny thing about this and I've I've talked about this before and I'm I'm trying to say it in a way that might be a little different but I'll just go the way I've said it before we have a problem with power we have a serious problem with power Jonah wanted to see justice meted out to the Assyrians he wanted his word to come true Because they deserved it. That's a sense of power. That's a sense of power. But here's the problem. We talk servanthood, we seek masterhood. The problem is, we're right, they're wrong. How do we respond to power? With more power. You know, let me put this into in the the context of today men have abused power for a long time especially in marriage but also in the workplace and how have the women responded to that come on 60s have they (laughs) 
They reply with power. We need to exert our rights. Which is natural. If someone's knocking you down, you're going to fight back. But let me just say one thing. That was the wrong response. You don't fight power with power. They are wrong, not you. Seek servanthood, not masterhood. It's a, it's a difficulty for us. Because at the end of the day, do we really want to see people repent? Or do we want to see people own up to what they've done wrong and justice meted out? Because that's what Jonah wants. Jonah doesn't want to see the Assyrians forgiven. And if they are going to be forgiven, well, they still have to pay the price for what they have done. Why don't you just give us the power to wipe them out? That way all will be right. It's that call to power that is so powerful in our lives. Just so overwhelming in our lives. The reason why Jesus says it's so difficult for rich people to make it into heaven, you know why? It's got to do with power. They're used to seeking masterhood, not servanthood. They're used to being the centre of attention. They're used to being up the front, the honoured place at the table, charge of all the work that they do. That's the, that's the curse of the rich person. And if they're not given that uh, rightful respect, and Jesus said it, send it to the rich man. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, verses 3 to 10, this is where Jesus is being uh, tempted by the devil. And the three things Satan throws at him is this. He says this, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf. What's he trying to get him to do? Exert his power. Is there anything wrong with converting a stone to bread? Is that, is that an evil act? Actually, it's quite a good act. There are a lot of stones in this world. I don't know. You go to Birdling's Flat, right? You know, a lot of loaves of bread there, eh? You can feed a lot of people. So there's nothing evil in the act, but there is. It's the power. And then the devil led him up and showed him all the kingdoms. To you, I give their glory and all this authority. Why? Because it's been given to me. And I can give it to anyone. You've always got to be weary of anyone who's in power. You know why? Who's really got dominance over everything in this world? Well, according to that, he says, I'm the one that can give authority to anyone in this world. So if anyone's got power or is successful, be careful, because it's easy to be misled. And Jesus obviously says no to that, but then he takes him to Jerusalem. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. Power again. Exert your influence. Exert your authority. Exert your power. In all of this, we are driven. And this is difficult for us as Christians. You know why? Because we have the truth. And that gives us a sense of power. And we can easily become like Jonah when our task is to redeem people. Our task can be meting out justice because of that power. 
That's not our job. That's not our job at all. Our job is seeking redemption for everyone. Does that make sense? But it's difficult because we can be like Jonah. And sometimes, for some of us, rightfully so. Because frankly, it would be really difficult if Adolf Hitler was standing right here and he said to you all, with his little moustache and his funny hair and the whole thing, and he said to you all, I'm sorry, would you just embrace him and forgive him? Would you come forward and embrace him and forgive him? And exonerate him for everything he has done? Would you do that? Because the Lord Almighty is, would do that. And if we are his representation, as difficult as that sounds, as hard as, oh, you guys know me, and I know you, it is difficult. It is way difficult, which is why forgiveness is a very complex and difficult things for us Christians. Why conflict is so difficult in this place. Why we would rather talk to somebody else than go to the person themselves because we don't want to. Or we hold grudges. We say, oh yeah, we accept. You know, we forgive them. But we hold the grudge because we'll never forget. Because I must never forget what they've done to me. I forgive them though. Well, hang on a sec. Are you prepared to stand before God who will look at you and say, I forgive you, but I remember everything you did. No, the word's quite clear. The moment he forgives you, gone. And if you're called to be his representation here on earth, then you're called to forgive. I can hear you guys formulating in that head, but, but what they did to me. No, look, I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying I've got it down pat. And I don't know many people that do, to be honest with you. But like Jan was saying about teachers, they appreciate it. God appreciates you trying. He knows the difficulty you've got. He knows the pain you feel. He knows of the injustice. He knows. Second thing we'll look at this morning is this. Grace is a changing thing. There's this funny story as you go on in chapter 4. You know, you get him real angry and God poses him the question, have you have any right to be angry? And Jonah's not convinced. He's, he's had enough. He wants to go and he purchases himself. And we'll read on from verse 5. It says this, Then Jonah went to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see if anything would happen to the city. He goes, you know what, whether you say it or not, God, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to wait. I'm going to sit there and wait and I want to see fire and brimstone come down on this place because they deserve it. How many prophets and preachers have you heard over the centuries preach that? Jonah's on their little mount looking over the cities, wanting to see destruction come, wanting to see fire and brimstone hit. And here he comes. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spreads broadly over Jonah's head. Now, Nineveh's basically in northern Iraq, okay? And if you know the climate there, it can get very hot. 
And poor old Jonah's very uncomfortable sitting there waiting for destruction to happen to Jonah, to, to the city of Nineveh. And of course, he didn't have an umbrella or anything. Uh, so, you know, all of a sudden, this plant grows up next to him and it covers his head and he's got shade. And, you know, he go from being 40 degrees in the heat to, to maybe 35. Big difference. Very big difference. So now he's comfortable as he waits for the apocalypse to happen to these people, right? Um, just incredible, whatever. Going on... Um, this eased some of his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plan. All he needed was popcorn, and he was set, right? But God also prepared a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it soon died and withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God sent a scorching east wind, kind of like a nor'wester for us, right? Uh, to blow on Jonah, and the sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than this. Just a question, who put himself in that position? He could have been halfway back to the ocean by now, right? But no, he's sitting on this... Death is certainly better than this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, notice the second question is very similar to the first. Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? And Jonah's response was, yes, even angry enough to die. We have two scenarios in the first nine verses. Nineveh, how angry I am. I wish to die. I wish to die because of what? God had liberated the people. Now he's angry again. Do you have any right to be angry? Yes, angry enough to die because this plant died. All of a sudden, Jonah's gotten on all these high and mighty. Have you noticed this? There's something going on with Jonah. He's angry, obviously. He has issues, obviously. And he's angry, obviously. It's interesting, as Christians, we go, as non-Christians, we start as the world owing me everything, right? You grow up, sorry, any teenagers here? I don't know, most, some of them are actually off a parachute, but there are a couple around... You grow up as a teenager, as a young adult, and even as a married man, that the world owes me. And then you meet God, and you realize you owe everything. But then something happens as we get comfortable as Christians. We revert back to God owes me everything. It's not the world anymore now, it's God. That progression going from the world owes me everything to meeting God and saying, I owe everything, to then progressing to God owes me everything. And this is Jonah. Does that sound vaguely familiar? That we kind of build our lives demanding, you know, God owes me this. Forgetting that actually we're the ones that owe him everything. That day when we gave our lives to God, that day that we encountered Jesus, the day that we believed, the day that we realized how much love was poured out for us, the day grace covered us, the day that we were overwhelmed by how much we were forgiven, that we would give anything and everything, that day kind of feels very far away as we become more entrenched in our power of I'm in the right place, I know the truth and now that becomes a demand 
And now that becomes, how much does God owe me? And Jonah has gotten to that place. He's a prophet of God. He hasn't lost his position as a prophet of God. He hasn't lost. He hasn't denied. You know, some people think, oh, he's doing really bad. He shouldn't be a prophet. Well, actually, he's a human being. Give him a break. Because he's not much different to any one of us, regardless of how high his position might be. He's still a human being. He's caught up in this. He's caught up in this. There's an interesting book uh, by an Australian author. Her name's Mary Zanazi. Um, it's called Hope. I was just revisiting it the last couple of weeks ago. And in this book, she makes this comment. She, she defines what hope is. Now, she's not a Christian, so you know, take it from that position. She says, Hope is a basic human condition that involves belief and trust in the world. It is the stuff of our dreams and desires, our ideas of freedom and justice, and how we might conceive life. Now, as a Christian, I can look at that and pull that apart quite quickly and quite easily. What does she mean, the world? I mean, seriously, a belief and trust in the world? Come on. What's the world going to give you? I mean, can you trust in Wall Street? Uh, can you trust in nature? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, we had an earthquake here. Who would have ever thought that would happen? I'm not going to trust the earth ever again after that one. You know, you put your money in. in the, who's going to have a superannuation plan in 20 years' time? Are we really going to even have a government that's even being able to pay off the debt? So that's, I mean, I could go on about this world. Belief and trust in the world? But my job's not to knock her. You see, this is how we approach things as Christians. Just like Jonah, we want to blow people's vision of hope. Whatever deck of cards have set up, how flimsy it might be, it is their view of hope. And what we want to do is go in there and blow it up and then introduce the love of Jesus in their lives. When everything they knew and thought of has just been shattered. It's like Jonah going into Nineveh. You're all going to die. That's going to fix them up. Well, it, it actually worked. But, but the most important part is the beginning of chapter 4 where he starts to outline who God is. Love, compassionate, slow to get angry. We'll do anything to try and stop destruction from coming upon us. And we as Christians, when we, we, we're like, I don't know, some tactical force whenever we come into evangelism where we're all decked out with all the answers. We've got, you know, all, all, all the weaponry on hand. We've got the grenades. We've got the snipers. We've got the, the you know, the glow, the, the seeing the dark glasses and the whole thing. We're decked out, ready to fight the battle. We jump in there. We blow people's minds on what hope is. And all of a sudden, they're left with nothing. And you want to try and fill that with Jesus. They're not going to trust you. They're not going to hear you. You've just blown any kind of idea of what their hope is. Instead, let them hold on to that. But let me fill in some gaps for you. God loves you. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter how bad you are. God loves you. Loves you. Cares about you. And you have a choice to make. It's your choice. He's not forcing you. And all of a sudden, people listen. 
people start to question their insides. You know, with my mum, I shared this with you before, with my mum, I never once evangelised to her. I became a Christian. The only thing she noticed in me was I changed. As a selfish, self-centered 21-year-old, I changed. I started telling her when I'd come home. I started telling her when I was going out. I would cook dinner. I would clean my room. That was a miracle in itself. She thought I'd gone crazy. She thought I'd lost the plot. Never once. Not one verse, not one Bible reading, not one prayer, nothing. I had it in my heart. I want to see her change. I had it in my heart to God, Lord, just change her. But never once did I bow my head when we were at the table to pray for her food. I just ate. And believe it or not, two years later, she gave her life to the Lord. Can you trust the Spirit to make changes in people's lives? Can you actually trust the Holy Spirit to make those changes? You just need to be obedient to who God is. And God's not dressing you up in tactical warfare to go attack people. He doesn't want to see bloodshed. He doesn't want to see people's lives destroyed. And he certainly doesn't want to see fire and brimstone firing down on the nation. He wants to see redeemed people, people who come back to him, people who find their hope not in the world but in him. And we're called to facilitate that. We're called to help out. I think it was Tony Campola who once said, Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, could have, could have called down 10,000 angels with submachine guns like that. And he could have blown everybody away and they would have all fallen down on their knees and worshipped him. Instead, he chose to die. He chose not to do that. He chose to die. The all-powerful, almighty God gave up all power to show how much he loves us. And grace, finally, is an eternal thing. The funny thing about grace is it doesn't depend on what we have done, but what God has done. There's nothing we can do. It's God's love for us. This is the last verses of Jonah, which I find, it's the only, I think it's the only Bible book that ends with a question, unanswered question. He goes on, he says, Then the Lord said, You feel sorry about that plant, though you did nothing to put it there. And a plant is only at best short-lived. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. I think that's something we tend to forget, huh? God actually loves animals, cares about animals. I've got two cats at home that I don't care very much for. And I certainly don't know if I can say I love them. But I've got to remind myself, God loves them. 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? You feel sorry about that plant, though you did nothing to put it there. And the plan is only at best short-lived. Should I not care for such a great city? Our city is bigger than Nineveh. 
one of the few cities that we are actually bigger than. Spoken like a true person from Sydney, huh? We are bigger than Nineveh. Do you think God cares about Christchurch? And everything in it. It could do all the wrongs in the world. It could be as evil as evil can get. But God still cares for this city and for everyone living in it. So what does it say about us? There's this poem that I found online. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonahs in their comfortable houses to come away, come around to his way of loving. So the challenge for you this morning. Hey, did I give you any challenges this morning so far? No. Oh, I'll give you one. How's this? Revisit how you love people. Now, loving people doesn't mean that you fall backwards for them. There was still an outcome for the people of Nineveh. They still had to repent. If they didn't repent, I believe destruction would have hit them. Okay, there is that aspect that we need to remember. There are still forms that need to be obeyed. There's still a way that God wants us to live. But if we repent, our job is not to seek justice. Our job is not to met out justice. Our job is to seek redeemed and find forgiveness. God will met out the justice. And the early church lived that. Never once did they complain when their lives were butchered, when they had to live underground, when they were tortured. They knew God's got this under control. They knew that he had it all under control. It's not for them. Their blood will be avenged by God and God alone. And he did. Can we trust him in that regard? At the same time, if you're called to forgiveness, then just remember God has forgiven you. And it shouldn't be that hard for us to forgive. We're human and it is hard. But we need to work towards forgiveness. Forgiveness being, I don't hold that against you. Amen? So what's your love going to be looking like this week when you encounter people in a city so great as Christchurch that God loves so much?